Good morning, everyone. This is Jeffy Kennedy. I'm here with my first cup of coffee. Mmm, delicious. Well, today is Thursday, September 19th. Lovely morning out here in the secret garden. The sunflowers are really in full bloom. I remember coming down to New Mexico long before I lived here at this time of year and seeing these sunflowers that just line the roads everywhere. And they seem like they're part of the New Mexico sunshine, you know, like they've absorbed our golden sunshine and they reflect it back. It's really very beautiful. I'll take a photo for you. Part of our, uh, part of what makes it the land of enchantment, I think. Hard to explain how the enchantment works here, but it's um, just, I don't know, it's in the air, in the air and in the land. Oh, I didn't bring my note with me, and I actually had a note of stuff I wanted to say, but we'll see how I do. I wonder if I should go get it. Maybe I should go get it. Let's, let's go fetch it. Go back to the passageway of doom and grab that. Jackson's on his harness out front, so I don't have to worry about him escaping. Where did I set that down? I know I had it in my hand just a moment ago. The story of many of our lives, right? Ah, here it is. Did I tell you the thing about, uh, I probably have talked about it before, the thing about living through doorways, there's some really interesting cognitive experiments um, and you guys know that I was like a neurophysiologist way back, so I occasionally read up on cognitive stuff because you know, it's like, um, I don't know, like an ex-football player still sometimes plays a little cat tag football or something. I don't know. Anyway, it's very interesting because they found that in some of the studies of short-term memory, that when you move through a doorway, anything that your mind perceives as a doorway, that you, it clears short-term memory. It creates a mental transition because you've moved from one space to another. So that's part of why when we walk from one room into the next, Sometimes we forget why we went into that room, you know, which a lot of people find distressing. You know, they feel like that's a, a really bad thing, but it's not. It's actually a very um, sort of a, you know, like a, I'm trying to think of a good way to put it, you know, sort of like purging the cache on the computer, you know, when you switch from one application to, to another. Our brains think, okay, well, if we're leaving this room and going into the next room, then we are, you know, if we're passing this gateway, we are leaving one place and going to another place, then we are going to do something else. And we don't need all that stuff that was clogging our heads in that other space because we're going to go do a new thing. Not many cholia birds this morning. So that sets your mind at ease. <laughs> it's actually a perfectly normal thing to go into the next room and then not remember what it was you were going to go get. And one way to combat that, and I do this all the time, it totally works 
as long as I'm not distracted thinking about something else, which I often am, granted, is to, as you're going to the next room to get the thing, think about it as you're going through the doorway. And then if you think about it as you're passing through the doorway, then you'll keep it in your head. And I did get a whole bunch of choya burrs in the bottom of my shoes here. I guess maybe more of them were stealth. I know she's been hiding them in the uh, gravel a bit more than she used to. So, anyway, I didn't go for Ryder Coffee this morning because they weren't going to be there today. Um, Emily Ma did say that she was sorry that they missed me last week, that they just um, weren't really feeling it, and they bailed early. And she said that they'd even said, oh, hope we don't miss Jeffy. So that was nice. I told her it wasn't any big deal. I went and put gas in the car and washed it. Oh, no, drew a little blood. There we go. A little blood and sacrifice to my my pack rat pal. Guess I should wait and get the rest of this with needle nosed pliers so I don't keep driving these little burrs into my fingers. Oh, there I got the big pack of it though. So I did write for an hour already this morning, working on the fate of the Tala. The cover's oh, the cover's almost done. Sorry, I thought I accidentally turned it off. Um, it's been a bit of work wending my way back into this story, and I'm feeling a fair amount of pressure with this story too, just because there is so much to pull together. And I think I was probably talking about this back in May. I should go back and listen to some of my podcasts. But I, I keep waffling because I feel like I should probably go back and reread all the books to this point and make sure that I you know, like gather up all of my threads. But I don't really want to. I keep resisting doing that. And so much of this, you know, for me, writing is is following a lot of my intuitive ideas about things. And so I think, well, if I'm resisting going back and reading everything, maybe that's a real thing. Maybe that's intuition. And I don't think it's laziness. I, I just, it feels different than that. So... I don't know. So far, I've been going through and layering a whole lot into this first scene, which certainly is a standard way for me to work. Um, a lot of times I do it with the first act, and so far it's been this first scene. So I still haven't really gotten to a place where I am laying down major amounts of new words. But I did do almost 600 this morning in the first hour, which is more than I had been doing especially considering that I was kind of still working over a previously written chapter or two there. So I may be layering for a while, and I just have to try to be good with that. Not, not stress about it. So, you know, one thing is 
and I talk about this a lot, I know, is that whole idea of, of pushing the other voices out of the room. It's just so easy to have so many voices in your head as you're writing. And getting into the drafting headspace requires transitioning to a different kind of headspace, for sure. Um, very different than editing and so forth, which is you know really all I've been doing for several months now or drafting in small bits. You know, writing this climactic book is requires a different immersive head space. And so I think I have to um not expect it to click into space immediate into place immediately. But then there's also, you know, with Orchid Throne coming out, I'm seeing reviews. I'm getting tagged on reviews. And I'm really having to be good about not looking at the reviews. Because as I write this book, I keep thinking of things, thinking, you know, oh, well, you know, there's too much talking, or there's not, you know, I need to have her be more this. I don't want readers to feel like this is too that. And, you know, and some of it comes from doing the pretty intense shaping of the new shiny, you know, and and so I have a lot of Sarah's stuff in my head about, oh, well, you know, you can't have it be to that and try to make it be more of this and and it's leaking over into this book and I it's it's interesting I mean you really have to push those voices out of your head because there's just no place for them in drafting and I know a lot of this has to do with my method and this is what I took notes on that something I wanted to talk about today in particular is the idea of inspiration and we all kind of see it differently. We all have different metaphors. Um, and one of the things that Elizabeth Gilbert says in Big Magic was this idea of talking about inspiration like a visitor. That she thinks ideas want to be made manifest in the world and that they roam around and look for somebody to do it. And so inspiration comes and it hangs out and it waits to be paid attention to. And she said sometimes it'll stay around for a little while. Sometimes it won't take much longer. And she talks a lot about how if, about entering into the contract with inspiration. And she says that if you say, if you accept the idea and say, okay, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do the work, and then don't. Like if you go screw around, if you work on something else, other things come up. If you don't actually do that work, then the idea will leave and it will move on to someone else who will. And and that really is one of her core ideas in Big Magic and one of her, you know, the explanation of how Ann Patchett ended up writing the Amazon novel instead of um, Elizabeth Gilbert unbeknownst to them both, which is an interesting story. And I was talking with Minerva Spencer the other day. We were chatting, and she was complaining about a book that she had started to write that she felt very excited about. And her agent had said, don't write the whole thing. Just write a partial, and we'll try to sell it on spec, which is exactly what Agent Sarah and I did with The New Shiny. And so it's typically very good advice because it's like, don't write the whole thing when, you know, we don't know if we can sell it yet. We don't know what your editor will want. 
and you know don't put a whole bunch of effort into a book if we haven't sold it yet you know put your effort into the books we've already sold it's it it is standard good advice in most cases but for Minerva she was saying that she wished she'd just written the whole thing because now she's lost the thread and she said it's just gone and so I was telling her about Elizabeth Gilbert and her idea of inspiration and uh, Minerva said oh yeah uh, and she, her inspiration has a name, and she used the name, and she, which I won't use just in case that's private. But she said, "Oh yeah, he's he left, he left the building." And I know other people who have named their uh, their muse or their inspiration and treat that like a visitor. Um, they personify it, and. I think it's very interesting because that is just so not how it feels to me. Um, has never felt that way to me. I, I can understand the feeling of losing the thread, which is kind of what I'm talking about with the fate of the Tala, that I still haven't quite gotten a hold of the thread again. But I never have this feeling that it's somehow gone forever. I just have to connect to it again. So... That's absolutely how it feels to me. Not like I am waiting for someone to come visit me, but that I am seeking the channel to plug into this thing outside myself. And so all of my writing rituals and the way I work are all predicated around that particular process, I guess is one way to put it, or analogy. Um, you know, the... The walking at the treadmill disc helps put me in a trance state. The fact that I say that it's hard for me, if not impossible for me, to know what the story is before I write it. It's like through the act of writing, if I can alter my consciousness enough, I can reach into this place where the story is. And I can connect with it again. And I can coax it to come through. I'm making elaborate gestures in the air right now. I can coax it to come through and bring it in um, and it flows in greater or lesser extent to a greater or lesser extent depending on the day and where I'm at in the story. Um, it's certainly true that if I'm trying to control the story if I'm wanting it to go a certain way and be a certain thing, that that seems to choke the flow. Whereas if I um, am good enough to give up the control and sort of throw up my hands and say, okay, fine, be what you want to be, then it flows faster and stronger. So I don't know. I don't know if we're all doing the same thing and calling it by different names or if if we're really doing it different ways. And I know some writers tend to be more intellectual writers than others. I know that I'm a very intuitive writer where I try to take the conscious thought and intellectualism out of it to as much as I can. Whereas other people really want that, really think things through. I asked Kelly Robson, what she thought of what was her lens on this process, and she was saying that she thinks about the ideas and the and she fits them into a framework, and so she has a process and a structure, which is closer to how I see it. 
except that she she thinks about it. Um, and her stories are very idea-focused. So, I don't know. I've sort of been mulling that. I suppose in some ways it's bringing out a bit of writerly insecurity on my part because, of course, Elizabeth Gilbert is terribly famous. And, you know, so I think, well, maybe it's that she's an inspired writer and I'm not. <laughs> um, I don't know. I don't know. I've certainly received inspiration in the, you know, or what maybe like feel a feeling of something reaching out from another place and handing it to me, um, visiting me, you know, especially in dreams. Uh, I'll get images or scenes in dreams that I then chase. But then I feel like I do, you know, reach in and connect with them pretty much at will. And maybe at will is putting it too strongly because it's not like I can do it at any moment. But I would say I certainly, um, I don't feel like I have to wait for it to come to me. I feel like I can uh, connect with it if I set up the conditions correctly. And a lot of times when I'm thrashing about getting back into a story, it's all about just trying to rebuild that channel. You know, like maybe that's where the analogies coincide is that it's not that I feel like um, my muse has left the building, but certainly the bridge has fallen into disrepair and I have to work at rebuilding it uh, so that we can both go back and forth across. Does that make sense? I guess I'm personifying and it really does not feel like a person to me. It feels like, um, yeah, like reaching into a, a vast well or ocean on the other side of some barrier. So, um, one thing I haven't mentioned is that we have been watching The Boys and have now finished the first season. And boy, that was just amazingly good. That was something that Minerva suggested that I watched. Um, she couldn't really get through Carnival Row either, although I did watch all of Car Carnival Row. She bailed on it, and she said, but oh my God, does she love the boys? And she said, but it's very, very dark. And I watched it, and certainly it is dark, and I could see why some people find it too dark, but I just thought it was so fucking brilliant. Um, there are so many things I love about that show, and it's from a comic book graphic novel, um, which, you know, is really just not my scene. I, I never know anything that's going on in that particular world. But the premise is that it's sort of a group of superheroes, you know, like the Justic, Justice League, um, the Seven, and there are corollaries to the, you know, there's a corollary to Superman called Homelander and a corollary to Wonder Woman, Queen Maeve, cor corollary to Aquaman, there's uh, the Deep. And so there's all of the the seven, but they're, they've been chemically engineered to be that way. It's kind of a reveal in the show, but I don't feel like that's spoilery. I'm sorry if it was. Um, but, you know, some of them believe that they are created by God or, and the world is um, 
you know, believes that they just have these superhuman gifts. But, like, Homelander is a psychopath. And it's fascinating. I mean, the actor who plays him does such an amazingly good job because he's, you know, blonde and handsome and stern-jawed with smiling blue eyes, and yet he's incapable of human emotion, I think, is what it comes down to. And he has zero compassion. And so his whole shtick is is an act. It's absolutely an act. And they don't really care about saving anybody at all. And the boys are this sort of group of um, wounded guys who have been their lives have been messed up in one way or another, unfortunately through woman in the refrigerator tropes, but, you know, there we are. Um, but that they are sort of seeking to bring down these supernaturals, seeking to, that they're the ones actually restoring justice. And it's, it's wonderful. It's amazing. So, Actually, that puts me out of time, so I should probably go on my way, go back and uh, work on rebuilding that bridge. Um, and otherwise, I'll talk to you all tomorrow. Take care. Bye-bye.